Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, my children often wonder, what do mom and dad do after we go to bed? Now, I'm going to tell you, but you've got to promise not to tell my children, okay? Michelle and I, we eat ice cream. Yes, we do exactly what children think adults are doing behind their backs all the time. Now, when we eat ice cream, often I am the one who is serving up the dishes, and I've noticed a pattern. When we open up a new carton of ice cream, and it's full, I love being a good husband. I give Michelle a big scoop of ice cream and I make sure she's got lots of good chunks in there. And I'll go back and I'll find a a ribbon of chocolate and kind of carve it out and put that on top so she's got a great serving of ice cream. But sometimes when we open up the carton and it's in that like awkward point, there's like one and a half servings left at the bottom, but there's two people. I don't feel quite so much like a great husband. Uh, oftentimes what I'm thinking as I'm scooping up is how much do I have to leave in the bottom to not look like a jerk? And and sometimes if Michelle's the one who's scooping up, I'll kind of like peek over her shoulder just to see that she's getting the chunk ratio right between us, that it's fair, you know? And to be honest, I try to get to the freezer first so that I'm the one in control of the servings. Now, maybe you don't deal with this at all in your life, but maybe you recognize the phenomenon. When the carton seems full, the scoops are big. When the carton feels empty, the scoops are small. When we perceive abundance, we act generously. When we perceive scarcity, we act stingy. We're continuing our series called The Big God Story. We're telling the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end, from creation to new creation. We've been telling the story through the lens of this idea, shalom. Shalom is the biblical word that means wholeness or completeness or harmony. It's when there is peace between God and humans and creation. It's the way things are meant to be. This is Eden. And we've been talking about shalom as having four different aspects of it. Shalom is when God's people are in God's place, fulfilling God's purposes and enjoying God's presence. Now, the problem was human sin broke shalom. When we decided we would rebel against God's purposes, we lost access to God's presence, we were kicked out of his place, and division grew up between God's people. And this is the reason the world is filled with evil and injustice, with brokenness and death. This is the reason things are not the way they're meant to be. But God approached a man named Abraham and he said, I'm actually going to put things back together. He said, I'm going to use you and your family to bring shalom back to the world. And from then on, the story of the Bible and the story of the world is how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to a place of shalom? What is God going to do to restore his world? And so we've been talking the last few weeks about God actually going around and kind of picking up the pieces of shalom. When God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he was calling out a people for himself. When he taught them the law, he was instructing them in his purpose And when he had them build the tabernacle, the place where he would live with them, he was giving them access to his presence. And now today, what we're going to be talking about is how the people entered in to God's place. And this is where we come to the topic of the promised land. The promised land. When God was speaking to Abraham, he called him. He said, I want you to leave the place where you live in Mesopotamia. And I want you to travel to the land of Canaan. 
Now, Canaan is just on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of nestled between two superpowers of the day. It's between Egypt and the land of Mesopotamia, which is where the empires of Assyria and Babylon and a bunch of others came up uh, over history. And it's on this trade route between these two locations. And so when Abraham got there, God said, this is going to be your place. This is going to be your home. I am going to give this land to you and your descendants after you. Now, that was a really big promise. And it took about 500 years for God to carry it out. But eventually he did. When God set the people free from slavery, Moses led the people right up to the edge of the border of Canaan. And then after Moses died, Joshua, the next leader, led them into the land where they divided it up among the tribes. Now, we're going to talk about what God intended for the people within the land today. We're going to talk about why God put them in this place, what it was for. And the reason we're asking that is because uh, there's a a whole lot of things that we learn when we uh, hear about the land that actually apply to our lives. Now, this is a little bit tricky, a little bit messy, because we're going to be talking about laws regarding the land that don't apply directly to our lives. We talked about this last week. There's some laws in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that on the other side of Jesus get changed. So we're going to be talking about some laws that uh, were for ancient Israel and what they were supposed to do in their economic system, how it worked for them. And they're not laws that we're supposed to just take and apply directly to our world and our systems and and everything like that. But they're really important to know about for a couple of reasons. Uh, For one thing, land is a huge deal in the Bible. If you read through the Bible, you're going to come across references to the promised land and to the, the, the management of the land all over the place. And if you don't have some idea about how this was supposed to work, it's just going to go over your head and you're going to be confused by those stories. But more than that, when God talks to Israel about their land, It's not just kind of irrelevant or curiosity uh, to them. This is incredibly, incredibly important. You've got to remember, these people were farmers who lived off the land. So the land was their home. It was their job. It was literally the way they put food on the table. So when you read the Bible and you read the word land, you should actually think family business. You could think job. This is is, uh, where they spent their time. This is the nitty gritty of daily life and application for them. And so if we look at what God said, here's what you should do in your daily, everyday, ordinary life, we're actually going to learn a bunch of principles that also apply to our daily, uh, everyday life. As we look at these laws today, here's what we're going to see. This underlying principle is a culture of gratitude and generosity leads to shalom. A culture of gratitude and generosity leads to shalom. That's the big idea today. So we're going to be looking at a few passages in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me to chapter 8. Deuteronomy is actually a collection of speeches. So when the people got to the edge of the promised land right there on the border of Canaan, Moses stopped them and he actually taught them. These are kind of his final words, final instructions before they entered into the land to guide them about how they were to live once they're inside. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 6. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates and olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. 
Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. The one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end, it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of things we're going to learn about the promised land here. Here's the first one. The land was a place of provision. It was a place of provision. Uh, Moses starts off with this uh, incredible description of the abundance of the land. There's springs and fields and barley and wheat and vineyards and orchards and pomegranates and honey and olive oil and metal and mineral and all of this stuff. It is a land where the bread will not be scarce and you will not lack for nothing. Reminds me of the story of Adam and Eve as they're coming out of the garden. The, The last thing that God does is he actually curses the ground. They're coming out of a place where uh, it's not that they didn't have to work for their food, but it was just came so easy. It was just kind of overflowing. They could just go and get it. But now they're going into a place where the, the ground is going to be cursed with thorns and thistles and they're going to be able to work for their food, but it's going to be toil and, and sweat and agony as they do it. And they're always going to be wondering, will we have enough? They're going from a place of abundance to a place of scarcity. But, but here on the edge of the promised land, Moses is saying, that's going to start to turn around. You're, you're going from the wilderness, this place of scarcity, and you're about to enter into a new land where it will be overflowing with more than enough to take care of your needs. You're going into a place of abundance. But Moses is also offering a warning. He, he's saying that abundance actually has a danger that comes with it. When you start to get used to the abundance and it starts to become normal to you, and you forget that it's not always like this, It does this weird, warped, twisted thing in the human heart. Look at what it says in verse 14. It says, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. So when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, traveling from slavery in Egypt to their new home, every single day on the journey, they knew if God doesn't get us through the next day, we won't make it. Every single day, they knew their dependence on God. But once they get in the land and the pantry is full, and the fridge is full, and there's an Aldi down the street when they can, you know, get whatever they need, they're going to start to take it for granted. They're going to forget that they're depending on God. And of course, the, the problem actually goes one step further than that. It's not just that they forget that God is the source of all they have. They start to think that they are the source of all that they have. Look at verse 17. I actually think this is one of the scariest sentences in this passage. It says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. You know why that scares me? Because it's so incredibly realistic. I can hear myself saying exactly that. I worked hard for this. I earned this. This is mine. And I've heard lots of other people say the same thing. I built this business from the ground up with my blood, sweat, and tears. You know, I, I worked my butt off to get into this college. I got the scholarship. I earned this. You know, I, I saved my money. I I invested in a smart way and now this retirement, I deserve this. I earned this. 
I mean, that's the whole idea of the American dream, right? Like if you work hard, you can get rich. And if you got rich, you can thank your hard work, right? But well, Moses says, actually, it's not that simple. Even if you work hard, look at verse 18. It says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It doesn't matter how hard you worked on something. You don't get to take credit for it. This is absolutely key. Everything we have, including what we work for, comes from God as an unearned gift. Everything we have, even what we work for, comes from God as an unearned gift. Now, at one level, this should be fundamental. This is like ABCs of following God. When someone first comes to know Jesus, the very first thing that we learn is the idea of grace, right? That everything is a gift from him. When we come to God, we come knowing that we, we are not worthy, that we, don't, we haven't earned any blessings from God. In fact, we've earned judgment from God. And when we come to God, we come to God powerless. We say, we can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to come from the outside and provide what we can't provide for ourselves. This is the basics. And, and many of us, we're, we're really comfortable with applying that to things like heaven and forgiveness and salvation. That, that's a gift from God. But when it comes to the ordinary day-to-day things like our money and our possessions and our, our, our achievements and accomplishments, we look at that and we say, well, that's something I earned. That, that's an accomplishment I've done by my own strength. We, we claim that as ours, not as a gift, but something that we've accomplished. But, but it turns out that it's, grace is a truth that goes all the way down. All of life is a gift. Everything you have achieved is actually a gift that you've received. How do we make sure that we don't forget that? But what do we do to remember that life is a gift of grace? Let let me suggest two practices that I find really helpful. First is this, ask why. Ask why. This right here is a triceratops. I own this. Uh, I actually just uh, took this off the shelf in my office before I walked out here to preach. Uh, And I'm sure some of you were, you know, looking at this and saying, well, why does he have a dinosaur out there? Well, she just kind of guards my Bible. That's her job. Um, Actually, I brought this out here precisely to get us to ask the question, why do you have that? Uh, This is actually an exercise you can do with anything that you have, something that you own. You can grab it and say, why do I have this? And then just act like a toddler and keep asking the question, why, 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 until you discover something interesting. So let me give you an example here, okay? Why do I have this triceratops? Well, it turns out my wife was in a store and she happened to see it and she thought, Clayton would love to have that in his office. He would think that was so fun. Uh, I'm going to get it for him. So she bought it for me. So it was a gift. Um, But she used uh, our money. So we we have the same bank account. So uh, really, uh, we bought this uh, for for me. So uh, the question is, why did we have that money? Okay, so you ask the question, why? Well, it's because I work hard and I got paid a paycheck for my work. Okay, well, why do I have a job and get a paycheck? Well, it's because I have skills that my employer uh, desires. And so uh, that, that works out well, okay? So I asked the question, why? Why do I have those skills? Well, I got an education and I I built up experience in in the field that I work in and uh, I have some natural abilities that I've honed over the course of my life. And so uh, all those things make it so that I have these skills to offer. Now this is where it gets interesting. Why is it that I was able to get an education and have experience and, and where did those abilities come from? Well, it turns out that out of the 7 billion people on the planet, I'm one of the relative few that was born into an upper middle class city in a country that's relatively stable and has good infrastructure and a history of prosperity. And that meant that my parents actually could afford to give me above and beyond just my daily needs. 
And it turns out that I was actually, uh, you know, had basically good health through my life and I had the support of friends and family. So I was emotionally secure in those relationships. And all those things were things that I didn't choose. I just sort of got handed those in my life. And on top of that, I, every single day I have breath in my lungs. And once a minute, uh, once a second, my heart beats and has for, you know, at least 37 years. And, and uh, beyond that, I, uh, I live in a universe that's fine-tuned so that uh, the, the constants of the universe make it possible for, uh, you know, planets to form and stars to form and uh, water to exist and uh, life to exist. And, and, and moreover, uh, every single second, the, the billion, billion, billion atoms in my body, they don't seem to fly apart. I get sustained every second. And that's the reason I have a triceratops. Now, this is just a knickknack. You, you can ask a question about something serious. I, I could have brought out my diploma or uh, my mortgage or uh, the, the food from my refrigerator and I could have asked the question, why do I have an education? Why do I have a home to live in? Why do I have food on the table? And just a few minutes reflection, you, you would start to realize that skills and hard work and smarts, those are just really the tip of the iceberg. That there are millions and millions of factors that I am completely not in control of. Things that come from history and things that come from my community and ultimately the things that come from God. There are so many things that lead me to where I am that I did not choose, I'm not in control of, I did not work for or earn. It's all a gift all the way down. And that leads to the second practice that's really helpful. You don't just ask why, you say thanks You say, thanks. This is what Moses said to do in verse 10. He said, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Uh, So often when I'm enjoying something, I forget to do this. Don't don't you? But you just kind of have something good come in your life and it just sort of passes and you, you forget to stop and acknowledge the fact that this was not just a happenstance thing. It actually came from the hand of someone who loves you and was generous with you. Gratitude is something that is is so simple and yet so powerful in someone's life. It's almost ridiculous. It almost feels like cheating. Uh, Study after study have shown that people who practice intentional gratitude experience more happiness and more resilience in life regardless of what their life circumstances are. It it is one of the, the easiest things to do to increase your happiness in your life is to take time to acknowledge that this didn't come from you, that it is a gift. It's a gift. Uh, gratitude is a way of giving, giving credit where credit is due. Uh, one way to put it is this way. If you see all of life as a gift, then every day turns out to be Christmas. Uh, what gratitude does is it keeps us from, from uh, thinking that this all comes from me and it reminds us that we are dependent on a good God every moment of the day. So what I recommend is every single person spend five minutes, even two minutes a day, pausing and uh, expressing either in writing or verbally Something that you're thankful for from that day. Something that, that was given to you. Doing this will do wonders, wonders for your life. It will help you see that the ice cream carton is in fact full and that God is a God of provision. Okay, so the promised land was supposed to be a place of provision. But that sort of raises a question that leads to the second point here. What happens when the place of provision doesn't actually provide for some of the people? I mean, think about the description of the promise in here. It's pretty over the top, right? Just overflowing with abundance. It's kind of a rosy picture. Now, I'm not saying that it's false advertising. Uh, It's true. But you might want to read the fine print on it. Uh, Because it feels like, really, is that how it worked out? 
There, there are actually a lot of people who will uh, read promises and descriptions of the land like this. And they'll, they'll, they'll assume that what that means is not simply that God is saying, I have enough to meet your needs. They'll assume it's saying, I promise to make you rich. They think God is saying, if you trust me, I will make you rich. There's a name for this. It's called prosperity theology. Uh, prosperity theology is when people say, if you follow God faithfully, you can expect material prosperity in this life from God. And I just want to say this really, really directly. Prosperity theology is false and dangerous and ought to be rejected. But part of the roots of it are a misunderstanding that comes from reading these Old Testament passages about the land and the abundance of the land. Uh, Part of the problem for prosperity theology is that it misses all the other things the Old Testament actually says about the land and wealth and poverty. Because it turns out the Old Testament is actually really realistic. When it talks about uh, the land, it also talks about poverty and human need a lot. See, in a sinful world, even when there's technically enough to go around, something will go wrong and there will be people who do not have what they need. Even in the promised land, there were outside circumstances like drought and natural disasters. There there were orphans, there were widows, there were uh, people with disabilities who couldn't work their land. There there were immigrants who came in, they didn't own any land in the country. They couldn't provide for themselves because of that. There there were some people who were just bad at farming. They they made poor decisions, they they didn't work hard, and they didn't produce on their land. And of course, there were also sinful people and broken systems that led to exploitation And people who were taken advantage of. There was injustice. And so even though the promised land was a step towards shalom and towards abundance, in a sinful world, shalom is always breaking down. And so God builds into the laws about the land uh, an honest assessment of that reality. God builds into the system ways to repair shalom as it's breaking down. So this is the reason the promised land is not just a place of provision. It's also a place of generosity generosity. Turn with me in Deuteronomy to just a couple of pages later to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let me read a couple of verses here starting in verse 4. It says, there need be no poor people among you for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and, he will, and you will lend to many nations and, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And skip down to verse 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. What's so interesting about this passage is the contrast between verse 4 and verse 11. So verse 4, it starts off, there need be no poor people among you. The Hebrew is actually even more direct. It says, there will be no poor people among you. But then verse 11 says, there will always be poor people in the land. And you look at that and you're like, okay, uh, hey, did someone uh, proofread this before they published it? Because you got to resolve that. What's going on there? I think this tension is really, really important. Because uh, verse 11 actually describes the reality that in a sinful world, uh, there will always be more people falling into poverty. The the world will keep producing poor people. And yet verse 4 says that there's hope for that. The key to reconciling these is actually in verse 5 when it says this. There, will be, there need be no poor people among you 
if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands. What this means is this. Each time someone in the community falls into poverty, there are ways for those people's needs to be met and for them to get back on their feet. But the condition is this. The people around them, the rest of the community, need to be following God's commands related to the land and to their possessions. What commands are those? There there are actually quite a few in here, but let me just share three with you that I I think are relevant and interesting. Uh, Tithing, gleaning, and jubilee. Those are the three. Uh, Here's what tithing is. Super simple, okay? Tithing is each household, each family was supposed to take 10% of whatever their land produced, whatever income their family brought in. They're supposed to take 10% of that and bring it to the tabernacle or the temple to give to the priests and the Levites. Now, why would they do that? Uh, Is this just an example of, you know, religious leaders exploiting people, manipulating people to to get money and, and wealth from them? No. Because here's what happened. When God was dividing up the land of Israel, when he was dividing up the promised land, God actually didn't give any land to the tribe of Levi. He gave it to all the other tribes, but not the Levites. Instead, what he did is he scattered the Levites throughout the community and assigned to them, you are going to work to meet the religious needs of the community. You're going to serve the community. And because of that, the Levites had no land of their own. And so they were dependent on the rest of the community to support them from their land. The the other group that was supported through the tithe were the marginalized people in the community. Deuteronomy 14 says uh, that, that we tithe so that the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Th- those three groups, the, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows, they come up again and again hundreds of times in scripture because those are the people in Israelite society who are most likely to find themselves in poverty. If we had written this passage today, we might include the same groups. We, we might call them you know, immigrants and at-risk youth and single mothers, but the idea is the same. These are the people who most often fall between the cracks of the social system and they, they fall into need. So this Old Testament pattern of tithing is actually the foundation for the idea of tithing to our local churches as well. As you read the the New Testament, uh, the apostles describe how uh, within the church, each person should set aside a portion of their income and that together the church should pool that money together to do two things. One is to to support those who serve as uh, leaders and ministers within the community and also to support those within the community who have fallen on hard times. That's exactly what the New Testament describes. And that's exactly how it continues to work today. That's how it works at Christ Community Church. Uh, When any of us gives uh, money to Christ Community Church, we use it to fund ministry and the staff that coordinate those ministries. That includes things like uh, Kids World and Camp Commotion and Care Night and uh, weekend services and uh, local impact and student ministries. All of which, by the way, continue to go on even through this pandemic season. Uh, Those funds also go to support people within the church who are in need. Every single year, we support hundreds of people who are in crisis. Uh, People who have lost their jobs or going through uh, an illness. Uh, People who are looking for counseling for their mental health, trying to get connected with someone who can help. Uh, People walking through addictions. We come alongside people all the time. And and we also work outside the walls of our church. We we partner with dozens of local organizations who are meeting tangible needs of people uh, all the time within our community. Even just this week, uh, our church collected uh, uh, food and school supplies uh, for hundreds of students who are going into school in in the upcoming weeks this year. We we also work with partners around the world in places like Sierra Leone and Brazil and Haiti, and we, we partner with them as they're meeting needs in their community. Now, none of this, all of this amazing stuff, none of it happens if we don't give. If we don't pool our resources together, 
It doesn't happen. We can't do it as individuals. We've got to do it as a community. Now, there, there are some of you who have never taken a leap and actually uh, given, uh, given to Christ Community Church or really to anything. You've never taken that step into a life of generosity. And I actually think that now is a really good time to start. It, it's something uh, that all of us need. This is where a life of shalom actually comes from. Uh, taking that step of faith and, and even just for the first time saying, I'm going to give something that I've never given before. And, and I realize it's an uncertain time right now, but this is exactly where the principle proves itself. A life of gratitude and generosity actually leads to shalom for you and for the people around you. And, and, and I got to remind you, the ice cream carton is actually full. I promise you, God will not leave you high and dry. He will supply your needs. There's more than enough. Now, the second law that addresses poverty within the land is the law about gleaning. It's about gleaning. So uh, my lawnmower is what's called a real lawnmower. That's R-E-E-L. The basic idea is this. Uh, I'm the motor for the lawnmower. So I, I got one of these real lawnmowers because it's quiet. Uh, I often uh, mow the lawn early in the morning when people are still asleep. And I like to listen to my earbuds while I'm, I'm mowing. And so that's kind of nice. It's good for the environment. It gives me a little extra exercise. But when it boils down to it, it just means that my lawn takes twice as long and three times as much work. And I highly recommend it. You should get one of these real lawnmowers. Uh, one of the great features about a real lawnmower is that the first time you go over your lawn, it doesn't actually get all of the grass. Like there's a whole bunch of little stalks that are still sticking up. And so you've got to go over it a second time. You know, I, I highly recommend getting a real lawnmower. Uh, in ancient Israel, this is how the harvest worked for them. Uh, it wasn't like modern farming equipment where they could go over at one time and get everything off of the plants. They would go through the harvest and they would uh, get as much as they could, the majority of the things that were growing in their field, but there would still be things on the stalks and on the vines uh, within the field. And they'd have to go over it a second time to make sure they got all of the produce from the land. But God told the Israelites, he said, I actually don't want you to do that. I want you to go over it once, but don't go over it a second time. I want you to leave the unpicked crops right where they are. Why would he say that? So that the orphan and the widow and the immigrant, the people who didn't have land for themselves, they could come through and they could pick what was left behind. Now here is why this is a genius idea. It's amazing. Uh, when people came through and they picked the extra grain, not only did they get their needs met, which was kind of the, the, the main idea, they also got two other things. They got dignity and they got connections. Think about this. They got dignity because they actually got to work for what they got. They got to be a part of the solution to their own problem. It wasn't just a handout. It was actually them using the, 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 the abilities that God had given them, uh, participating in, in helping themselves in this situation. They also got connections. Uh, because when they were working in that field, it, it wasn't just by themselves. They, they were with and around the rest of the family and the people who were uh, working on that land. They wouldn't just be swinging by a food pantry to pick up an anonymous do donation. Both the person who is giving the help and receiving the help, they would actually know each other and interact eye to eye, person to person. There, there's a, a connection that comes from that. Uh, true poverty is not just when someone has a need. True poverty is when someone feels powerless to do anything about their situation and they feel isolated and cut off from networks of support. And what gleaning does is it completely gets around that problem. Now, what might this look like today? Uh, we obviously don't, most of us are not farmers and this uh, sort of process wouldn't uh, work exactly for us. But is there a way to apply the principle of gleaning? Let me give you a couple of ideas. Let's say you've got some home projects that you want to do. And you're planning on doing them yourself because you want to save some money on the labor and you, you've got some time to do it. But you actually know someone who lost their job recently because of the pandemic. 
And so you're thinking about this and you realize, you know, I could spend a little extra money and I could hire that person. And instead of just trying to do something to help them, I would actually hire them to do this work for me. And we would build that relationship and that respect through that. Or maybe uh, as you know someone who's lost their job or is furloughed, uh, instead of just, uh, you know, making them a meal or uh, offering them some money to help pay for the rent, in addition to that, you also say, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, a a couple of hours each week in the evening and I'm going to make connections with the people I know. I'm going to use my network to help them find leads for a job, to actually uh, find something that they can do, not just so that uh, I I keep offering them something, but I actually give them a, a solution to their problem. Or maybe if you own a business, this is something that you say, you know, instead of maximizing the productivity and the profits that I could have, uh, I'm going to do something that actually makes space for people within this. So for example, uh, during a time when things are tight, you might say, instead of me taking a raise, I might take a pay cut so that the the people that work for me can uh, stay working and also take a living wage. Or or you might say, you know, I'm going to create some spaces within my organization where we can hire people who might not be able to get a job otherwise. Maybe uh, people who have intellectual or developmental disabilities. We're going to create jobs so that they can work. Or or people who are ex-convicts, giving them a chance to get back on their feet. And you create spaces for people to come in that might not uh, normally have access to that. Now, I'm not a business owner, and I don't know the context where all of you are, but I'm guessing that for for you who are entrepreneurs and who are uh, leaders in business, you've got creativity and ideas that if you thought through the principle of gleaning, you could find ways within your organization to give life and generously offer shalom to a lot of people. I know that during an economic crisis like this, you might be thinking for any of this, I I don't have margin to do this. things Things are tight. But I actually want to challenge you by asking this question. When do you think it was most important for the Israelites to practice things like gleaning? In times of prosperity or times of crisis? I think that these laws mattered even more in times of famine and plague and community crisis. When when more people were struggling in the community, you needed more people offering support. In fact, one of the most famous stories about gleaning in the Bible is the story of Ruth. And the reason that whole story happened is because there was a famine in the land and there were a whole lot of people in need. Whatever this might look like for you, it's going to mean instead of maximizing your efficiency, aiming to meet people's needs by building respect and relationships with them. Here's the third law, and I think this is the most curious and interesting one. It's called the Jubilee. The Jubilee. So you got to understand, when Israel was first given the land, God divided up the land between all the different families within Israel. So every single family got a plot of land so that they could have a farm and they could support their family. So everybody had what they needed. Now, inevitably, over time, there would be some families who would do better than others in farming their land. Uh, There would be some families who had good crops and then other families who would have year after year of bad crops or uh, bad investments or decisions. And so they would end up in debt because of some reason. And so what would happen is uh, those uh, uh, families that ended up in debt, they would often have to sell a portion or even all of their land to the families who were doing better. And so over time, the, the, the amount of land that they had would go down while the other families would get more and more land. And if you take this out over the course of generations, the families who had more land would have more to pass on to their children. And the families who had less land would have less to pass on to their children. And those who had more had easier ability to pick up even more. And so those who had more got more and those who had less steadily got less and less. And what this meant is that over time, certain families would have even harder time getting out of poverty. If you had to sell your land, it almost guaranteed that your children and grandchildren would be stuck with the same financial struggles as you. And so God actually created a system 
to prevent this from happening. He, he declared that every 49 years, so that's uh, every seven sets of seven years, there would be a year of jubilee. And it was amazing. They would blow a trumpet. They would declare through all, all the land that the debts were forgiven and that all the land would reset to the original families who owned it. And so the result of this was that it prevented the next generation from being stuck in a cycle of poverty because of the misfortune or mismanagement of the previous generation. They didn't have to suffer for for the uh, mistakes of their parents. Now, this didn't stop people from growing rich by working their land and making wise business decisions, but it did prevent a long-term gap from growing between the rich and the poor. And it made sure that every family had the means to provide for themselves. The the goal for this was that God's land would continue to be a a source of provision for all of God's people. That none of God's people would be living in the land and not experiencing the abundance that came from possessing it. Now, I know that as I describe this, some of you are thinking in your head, okay, well, what, what does that mean for us today? Now, I want to remind you that this is one of those laws that applied to ancient Israel that we are not expected to impose that system on our modern systems. It doesn't carry over directly. And I also know that there are some of you who are, are really tempted to say, okay, well, if that's the system God set up, which economic system today would God support? So would he be a capitalist or a socialist or what, what would he be? You know, what, what's, what's God behind? I actually read a bunch of articles uh, this week about people from uh, the left, the right, all over the the spectrum of views on economics and politics who all thought that Jubilee supported their view of economics. Uh, And so this is is what I want to say. This system does not map easily onto any system that exists in the modern world. And I don't think it's supposed to. I don't think this is supposed to tell us this is the economic system you're supposed to use. What I think it does is it tells us the questions we're supposed to ask about any economic system we would encounter. Questions that God cares about. Things like, does this system provide an opportunity for everyone to work hard and provide for themselves and their family? Does the system prevent a massive gap from developing between the very rich and the very poor? Does the system have ways of preventing people from falling into cycles of generational poverty and cutting that off? Now, I have no idea how to solve those problems. I'm not an economist. This is not my area of expertise. But I can tell you, these are the sorts of questions that ought to concern us because they're the questions, the problems that God sought to solve with the system he gave Israel. Because here's the thing, and this is is where it all comes together. The kind of society that God wants is one that is generous. One that is generous. The underlying assumption behind all of these land laws is that there is more than enough to provide for everybody. There is an assumption of abundance. The ice cream carton is in fact full. And when someone within the community falls on hard times, other people within the community should be able to provide for them because there is no lack when you look at the big picture. And even if that means those who have more have to give up a portion of their income, which is what happens in the tithe, or or people who have more have to sacrifice productivity, which is what happens in gleaning, or they even have to uh, share capital and resources that they have, which is what happens in the Jubilee, that's worth it. Those sacrifices are worth it. Why? Because you can never treat another person who's part of God's people as if they were an outsider. Their problem is your problem. They are your family and you got to take care of them. If we practice gratitude and generosity, it will lead to shalom. This is exactly what the early church did. This is what it says in the book of Acts. I love this description. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That's, that's a quote from Deuteronomy. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought money from the sales and put them at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed to anyone who had need. They were inspired by the land laws. They didn't apply it directly in the same way, but they used those same principles to care for each other. And every time I read this uh, passage in Acts, I always think, how did they do that? Like, how did they get to the place where they say, I am willing to do that? How did they get so open-handed with their life? That's amazing. I think it's because they were convinced of the abundance of God's provision. They they weren't afraid. They weren't grasping onto everything they have as if it was going to be taken away from them and they only had this much. They could give big scoops because the carton of ice cream was full. It's not just material provision I'm talking about. They knew God wasn't holding back at all because God had given himself. I'm going to finish with this. 2 Corinthians says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to do for other people what Christ has done for us. Open our hearts to receive all of your good gifts with gratitude. And give us confidence in your abundance so that we can live grateful lives and generous lives with other people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.